Oh, well, good morning again. I'm Sean, the lead pastor here. We'll be beginning a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes, a kind of lesser-known book in the Old Testament. And because we don't have any slides, it's printed for you uh, completely in the ESV translation on page 10. And there's a children's version on page 11. We'll be referring to both of those. If you, want, if you have a traditional Bible and you want to find Ecclesiastes, if you open it up about halfway, that's usually the book of Psalms. And if you'll head east or to the right, you'll get to Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes if you want to turn there. And you may have noticed that we did not forget to baptize and have a new member join, but Amy is ill, and so we'll have to reschedule that. We didn't forget. She just couldn't make it this morning. Here now, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. <clears throat> this is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, <clears throat> as we come before your word this morning, Lord, we come to a passage, a, a book that's unusual, it's difficult. Father, we pray that you would once again send your spirit to open this text up to us, that we might know your truth, might see who we really are, and see the beauty of Jesus offered to us in the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would confront us and challenge us and heal us even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. So this is an interesting book. That was definitely a uh, interesting text to start out with. So let's just own the reality from the very beginning. Sometimes life just doesn't make sense. Even for Christians, perhaps especially for Christians, being faithful in the world is hard. Really believing that there's a creator out there who cares for us, who has purpose for us, is challenging. When friends die, when loved ones get cancer, when the world suffers through prolonged disease and we have to watch those we love succumb to it, it's all very frustrating. When life shows how unmanageable it is, we we wonder, how is God in control when things like that happen? Sometimes in church world, there's... There's a well-intended pressure to put a positive spin on life's difficulties, to make pious pronouncements to help God save face, make sure Christianity doesn't look bad. 
But books like Ecclesiastes remind us that Christians actually have the freedom to be at the forefront of admitting that life is frustrating and doesn't work. That is, after all, why we need Jesus. I'm reminded, and I couldn't believe how long ago this movie was as I was thinking of this movie, but remember Jerry Maguire? That was 25 years ago. Yeah, welcome to being old. Remember the memo that starts the whole thing off? The things we think but never say. That's Ecclesiastes. It's all about the difficulty and frustration of life in this world, of how God's people don't have all the answers, and often, no, always, we have to live by faith that the Lord is in control because it sure doesn't look like He is a lot of the time. Ecclesiastes asks the questions that the rest of the Bible answers. So Ecclesiastes is one long sermon given by this person who identifies themselves as the preacher. Traditionally, this has been held that Solomon is the, the author of this book. That's a strong tradition. It's not necessarily in the text. That little phrase there, uh, son of David, can either go with preacher or can go with uh, someone else. It doesn't necessarily have to be the king in Jerusalem is the preacher. The king of Jerusalem could go somewhere else. So we really don't know in the text who is the author, but the strong tradition is that it is King Solomon. But ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the author, and this author it makes one long sermon. It's going to take 12 chapters to come around to finally answering his own questions. But in the meantime, this preacher, this philosopher, we could call this person writing this text, is very contemporary with the classical philosophers of Greece, right in that ilk. So we could call this person an Old Testament philosopher. We could call them a pastor. This person lays their cards out on the table with complete honesty. This is what life looks like in a cursed, fallen world. It doesn't work. It's hard to manage. It leaves us hungry for meaning, for purpose, for identity. It's a life that even for Christians is difficult. A word you're going to hear a lot as we walk through this book together is life is frustrating. Again, for many church folk, we've been conditioned to put a positive spin on life. Being candid about these issues is hard, but owning these issues, owning these questions that Ecclesiastes brings up, is actually a key to our own personal peace in a difficult world. And owning these issues is also vital to connecting to our neighbors in a post-Christian culture that people recognize life is just not working. Ecclesiastes is a great tool to talking to folks about the gospel in an era where people don't see easy answers. Because again, Ecclesiastes asks the questions that the rest of the Bible answers. And the rest of the Bible answers those questions in the person of Jesus Christ. That gets us to our theme for today, which is printed for you on page 9 if you need to see it. And it's this. If life under the sun is so rough, then get over it. And that's actually not nearly as curt as it sounds, but yet we'll have to get there to see. Since life under the sun is riddled with frustration, boredom, and weariness, let's get over the sun. So this text starts out in the first couple of verses. We see lots of frustration under the sun. This phrase, under the sun, is used 28 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is his go-to kind of phrase. It's very much like the New Testament phrase, if you're familiar, the world. 
It's the way life is in a fallen, cursed world for both believers and unbelievers. You see, the world used to be different. And that's the problem. The Bible says that we used to have perfect fellowship with our Creator, that He was with us, we were with Him, He gave us meaning, He gave us identity, He grounded us, we were significant in Him. And then in rebellion and sin, what is called the fall, we lost all of that. And living in that loss, we have frustration because we innately sense things should be better than this. Blaise Pascal, you may have heard of, was a 17th century Christian thinker and philosopher, mathematician, kind of proto-scientist, and he taught this thing called the disinherited prince syndrome. And basically, it goes like this. If you're born in the peasant class, it's not, a, it's not like a celebration. We get that. But if that's all you knew, you could be happy in that, in that level of existence as a human. If you were born a prince and then disinherited and had to live as a peasant, even if all your basic needs were met, you would never be happy because you remember the height from which you have fallen. You remember what it used to be like. And Pascal taught that the fact that humans are universally unhappy is a disinherited prince syndrome, that the fall and our reaction to living in this world is like a spiritual fossil giving us a clue to the heights from which humanity has fallen. Because humans are not happy. And it points to some collective memory of a time when we were happy, when the world did work. And we know somehow deep down in our gut that this is not how things should be. That's life under the sun. And so under the sun, we cry out, verse 2, vanity of vanities. It's a very famous phrase. But vanity is no longer the best word to use because the English meaning has changed from when the King James people first used this to translate 300 or so years ago. So purge the idea of vanity from your mind. What you're thinking of vanity is not what this text is trying to get you to see. Instead, I want you to go back to Monday or Tuesday morning. If you happen to have gotten outside, especially earlier in the morning, and you exhaled deeply outside, what happened to your breath? You got to see this little cloudy, misty thing, and then it was dis- disappeared. And what would you feel like if I told you, hey, next time on a cold morning, what I want you to do is I want you to grab some of that and bring it to me. I want to see it. Exactly. That's the idea of this word. It cont- this Hebrew word contains ideas of being a vapor, of being a mist, of being meaningless. It has the ideas of emptiness, or the one that I'm going to land on for most of our time together is the word frustrating. Life is insubstantial. We try to control it, but it just slips through our fingers. And that frustration from verse 2 shows up in the question of verse 3 where he asks, where's the profit in all that we do? Boys and girls still here, I want to make sure you're tracking with, with me. So let's t- all turn to page 11 together, boys and girls. Okay, We're going to look at verse 3 together. Here's what he's saying. Verse 3 says this, Everybody is busy with places to go and things to do, but what do we really get in this world from all that work? All right, boys and girls who are here, you don't remember this, but your parents remember, your grandparents remember. Do you know, you know what your favorite word was when you were two to four or five years old? Your favorite word was why, or mine, probably, hopefully it was why. 
Why this? Why that? Why? 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 And you stopped asking. And you know what's sad, boys and girls? You stopped asking not because you got all the answers, but because you realized that no one really gave you good answers. That's what this text is saying, boys and girls, that after everything we do, everything we suffer, everything we complete, everything we enjoy, everything we fail at, at the end of it, what are we really left with? It's just frustrating. If you'll turn to your front cover on page two, the inside, let's look at that third quote there at the bottom from Leo Tolstoy. I ran across this when I was in college. Leo Tolstoy wrote War and Peace. He was a famous Russian writer in his own day. And it fits so well with Ecclesiastes. Here we said that third one down there on page two, Tolstoy asks, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man. What will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? That's the first few verses of Ecclesiastes. Functionally, how we actually live our life, these questions are at the root of our frustration. No matter what we do, eventually we're going to die. That's life under the sun. And if this cursed world is all we have, what is the point of anything? There's no profit. There's no gain in anything. Since deep down we sense that, what do we do? We wear ourselves out with busyness. But what do we get? Like that old, old song, another day older and deeper in debt. See, we hunger and we thirst for something deeper. We're scared to death of meaninglessness, that life really is only a vapor. We hunger and thirst for real purpose, for real meaning, but we reach out in vain under the sun. And that leads to frustration. But it also leads in verses 4 through 8 to being tiresome under the sun. Starting in verse 4, this preacher, this philosopher, turns to nature to make his case about the meaninglessness of life. He looks at the sun day after day, rising and setting, following the same track, never getting anywhere. He looks at the wind blowing, changing direction, blowing again, never changes. He looks at the Jordan River flowing day after day after day after day into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea never filling up. Nothing seems to be accomplished from all that effort. He basically asks, can't you see everywhere all this effort for no gain? And then he lands on verse 8. All things are full of weariness. It's all tiresome. It's all laborious. Not only that, he says man can't utter it. Literally what he says here is man has no strength to speak about it. He's trying to show us how exhausting life is. The same day in and day out repetition occurs in nature and it occurs in people. It wears us out to even think about it. We can't even talk about it. As one generation would say, been there, done that. Whereas another thing would say, I saw this book one time, it was a real book, I should have bought it, I, I wish I could have bought it. Remember, you can raise your hands, remember the little engine that could? Remember that book, the children's book? Raise your hand, right? Remember the little blue engine, right? I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. I found a version of that one time, and it said the millennial engine who couldn't even. <laughs> right? 
I love that. I just can't even right now. That's Ecclesiastes at this point. Hey, boys and girls, I want to make sure you're still tracking with me. Let's look at verse 8 together for you. Again, back on page 11. Here's what your verse 8 says. It says, everything, people and planet is so worn out, we can't even talk about it. Nothing makes us happy. All right, boys and girls, how many of you have chores around the house? Yes, good. You should have chores around the house. Pastor Sean had chores too. And the one that I really hated, and the adult description that I learned later as an adult is I, this existentially bothered me. I didn't have those words as a little kid. I just hated it, was making my bed. Not because it's so hard, but because it's so stupid. I'm just going to get back in and make it messy again. Are you kidding me right now? That's just dumb. Oh, but my parents like, your opinion is not asked for. Do it. Like, oh, yes, ma'am. That's what Ecclesiastes is asking. Maybe that doesn't get it for you. Remember the beginning of the movie, The Incredibles, the little interviews? Remember Mr. Incredible? He goes, why? Well, sometimes I feel like the maid. Why can't the world just stay saved? I just cleaned this mess up. How about this one? Adults. Laundry. You can run, but you can't hide. It's always there. Yard work. Why do I got to pay the stupid water bill to make the stupid grass grow longer so then I got to mow the stupid thing on my only Saturday? That's dumb. Just dumb. Yards are just dumb. How about housework? How about paying bills? Monthly inventory. Quarterly reports. A weekly meeting that could be, should be an email. Busy, repetitive, kind of pointless. Life is much more like the movie Groundhog Day than we really like to admit, isn't it? See, Ecclesiastes says all of that is exhausting because deep down we know it doesn't make a big difference in the outcome of our life. I grew up using the phrase dog tired. Maybe some of you use bone tired. Ecclesiastes right here is saying people, the sun, the wind, the sea, creation itself is dog tired. The kind of weariness that goes beyond words. All of creation is flat, worn out from all this repetition for no apparent reason. It's exhausting and boring. Maybe you're having trouble relating. Or maybe you're thinking kind of like this sermon. Here's how I want to think. It's okay. You can laugh at that. I bore myself sometimes. Um, Think about it this way. How many times in a given day is your phone out not being a phone? Because, you know, phones do this, right? Phones don't do this. Something else does this. And how many times during a day, all of a sudden, like, uh uh-oh, I'm not being stimulated. I might start to think. Quick, flip. Because when we do have time to think, when we do let our minds and our hearts wander, the problems come to the top, don't they? Like quick. The stresses, the frustrations, the long-term issues, the exhausting meaningless of life under the sun forces itself into our minds. So we keep, please show me a TikTok, share a meme, do, send a text, do something. And what have we gained after all of that? What have we actually profited? But we can't stop. And rest, because as the rest of verse 8 tells us what? The eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear not satisfied or filled with hearing. 
Whatever we do to try to cover up this angst we feel, it doesn't satisfy us. It doesn't bring us rest. Even the most beautiful and good thing has weariness riddled all through it. Everything under the sun is tired and tiring. Life is tiresome because we suffer from the same old amnesia under the sun, is what verse 9 through 11 tells us. Now, if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, you know this phrase right here from verse 9 usually. There's nothing new under the sun. In our frustration, we seek out a cure, something novel, something new, something different, something refreshing. C.S. Lewis in his Screwtape Letters called this the fear of the same old thing. We seek a new toy, anything shiny to make us feel better. And that's part of the meaninglessness and repetitiveness of life. We keep trying to fix it. People with significant credit card debt It's rarely for essentials. It's often for the new trinket, the new experience to make you feel better. And you know it's true, right? That new gadget, some new clothes, that retail therapy, it does temporarily work, doesn't it? It does bring a sense of relief. There is a little bit of joy in doing that. See, that quest for something new is not new. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that people have been like this since there's been people. There's truly nothing new under the sun. And when we forget that, we get even more frustrated at life under the sun, thinking that people in the past had it easier than we do. They just don't get it. Or the biggie, here's where we get caught. We dream of our future selves, that new person that will be. You know, that person that somehow, without really a plan, but we just dream that that person's going to get out of debt. That person won't have as much anxiety. That person will have a better job, better friends, better house, more money, more free time, better hobbies. We'll be be smaller in the right places and bigger in the other places. That person will be happy. That'll be new. That'll be, fix it. Ecclesiastes reminds us, no, there's nothing new. You take your problems with you into the future too. Give an example of this. I just find fascinating. There's a medical textbook. I wish I could show you a picture of it. It's it's beautiful in its artistry. Um, It's called Bald's Leech Book. And it's from 950 AD, so over a thousand years ago. And it's full of treatments and recipes for what can only be called potions. And what's interesting is one of those recipes made the news about five years ago. This was in the New York Times. It was also in Smithsonian, Smithsonian Magazine. Here's part of the recipe. It says this, take leeks and garlic of equal quantities, pound them well together, take wine and gall from a freshly slaughtered bullock. That, that's a bulb. Isn't that a great word? Bullock. Mix with the leeks. Let ferment for nine days in a brass vessel. Well, teams from the UK and the United States decided to give it a shot. And it created this slimy substance that when they tested was sterile. And then if you would, it was meant to be topically applied and they tested it and it kills MRSA. You know that super antibiotic resistant bug that's in hospitals? In fact, it kills MRSA just as good as vancomycin, which is the last-ditch antibiotic we have today. Think about that. Snape's making this in the dungeon at Hogwarts, and it's beating the best of big pharma. And we forgot it existed. Because just like verse 10 says, you may think it's new, but it's been done. Humans just forget like we forget everything which is right where verse 11 lands. Forget the past. We forget the past. And guess what? The future will forget us. Just as most people who've ever lived 
We will live, we will strive, we will die, and no one will remember us. That's life under the sun. You feeling it yet? <laughs> right? <laughs> You've got to give me something, right? What's the answer to such futility? What well, goes back to our theme? If life under the sun is so rough, then get over it. Get over the sun instead of living under the sun. Jesus himself claimed that all the Bible pointed to him in Luke chapter 24. And he either was right or he's wrong. There's no third option. And if he was right, Ecclesiastes is no exception. It was about him as well. So instead of being under the sun, what is offered to us in the whole of Scripture is we can be in Jesus Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun, but it longs so much for something new. And the rest of the Old Testament promises us that God will come and he will bring a new covenant to his people. Just last week at this table, we rejoiced at the words of Jesus where he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. In Jesus, there's something new. For the first time ever, the problem, the separation between humanity and its creator has been bridged and solved and fixed because God himself became one of us and he lived the life we should have lived before a holy God. He died the death we should have died before a God of justice and he bridged the gap. He has reconciled the fallen children of Adam back to their creator. That's new and it's available to you. Jesus can change you and he can change your place under the sun into something new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, a very famous verse. Many of you probably know it. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Verse 4 through 8 tell us that there is exhaustion and weariness under the sun, but being at peace with God through Jesus Christ brings the peace of God into our lives. In Jesus, the routine of life can no longer wear us out. In Jesus, we can be free from weariness of life under the sun. We saw in, in verses 2 and 3 that there's frustration under the sun, but in Jesus, that frustration is undone. Jesus makes the meaningless toil of life meaningful. Our efforts are now given new life in Christ. The Apostle Paul, specifically talking to a frustrated and frustrating church in Corinth, says, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, In the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's the same word. It's not frustrating. It's not empty. It's not a mist. Jesus himself taught in the Gospels, a time will come, where he himself will judge the work of humanity. He will say to his people, good job, you did that for me. They will ask, Lord, I don't remember doing this for you. When did we do it for you? Remember his famous response? Matthew 25, 40. As you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Our work matters because united to Jesus, we're actually doing our toil and our work for him. Ecclesiastes asks the question, what do we gain from all our toil and efforts? And the gospel answers, Jesus receives it as personal worship. That's what you gain. Jesus is the answer to the questions Ecclesiastes is going to pose over the next weeks and months. Instead of looking under the sun for fulfillment and purpose, but only finding exhaustion and frustration, we look out as those united to Jesus and we find in him all we could ever want. So really, as we wrap this up, the question at this point is this. Do you feel the frustration and meaninglessness? Do, do you sense 
this lack of purpose that Ecclesiastes is talking about? If so, could it be that you're a disinherited prince or princess, a child of the king, and that frustration you feel is God's call on your life to come home, to be reconciled back to the heights from which you've fallen? And he offers that to you in Jesus. C.S. Lewis, I've quoted him already. He's a great author, Chronicles of Narnia, lots of Christian books. Regarding these issues, he said this. This is so beautiful. He said, you know, if I discover within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The reason this world bothers and frustrates you the reason why we struggle and strive against the meaninglessness, the lack of purpose, is because we were not meant for this cursed world under the sun. We were meant to be in the sun, Jesus himself. You were meant to be with God in a world that works. If you feel that frustration, let it lead you to Jesus. Place your faith and trust in him today. Embrace him as he's offered to you in the gospel. He will bring you relief from your frustrations. He'll bring you something new. Well, let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we're not accustomed, at least I'm not, to being accustomed to being so honest with how hard life is. We're grateful that even in your inspired, authoritative word, you have owned that reality here often stinks. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to be honest about what life is really like. And then from that place of frustration, Lord, would you help us to flee to Jesus as he's offered in the gospel? Lord, we pray that as Jesus Christ has been presented as crucified for sinners and raised for new life, that you would do your work, fulfill your promise of drawing all people to him. Lord, would you build your kingdom even now and cause many to believe. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.